0: Hello, I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008 I gave up my 20 year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much product was being sourced overseas and I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that were still making in Britain. Since founding Make It British I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in the UK but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be telling the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and manufacturers and offering advice to those that want to make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Make It British podcast. Um I've called this episode today The Making of Make It British but I think I could just as easily have called it How to Give Up a Corporate Job and Follow Your Passion because that is what I've done and that's why I now dedicate my time to promoting people that manufacture in the UK. So to understand a little bit about why I do what I do, I thought it would be really good for you to hear about where I've come from so let me take you back to 1991 that's the year I graduated from Middlesex Poly Fashion College and there was a recession on when I left college so I trained as a designer and I left college in 91 and there was pretty much no jobs available so what do you do when you're a designer and you've been taught how to sew at college because Back in those days, as a fashion student, you were actually taught how to put a garment together. Um, and I had a little sewing machine and I had a partner who I had met at uni called Joe Hunter. Shout out to Joe if you're listening to this. And we set up our own business called Cat Weasel Clothing. I know, stupid name. And um, we... We, it was recycled clothing, cat weasel recycled clothing. So what that meant was that we found lots of old blankets and curtains and and other um, and other fabrics that people weren't using. A lot of them vintage fabrics, and we turned them into clothes. So we had this brand called Cat Weasel Clothing and we sold it all from a market stall in Camden which is kind of what you did in the early 90s uh, and we it, it took off so well so quickly in fact, I probably earned more money in my uh, time with a stall on Camden Market making all my own clothes than, than I did in the twenty years following that. Um, so, so we made everything ourselves. I did a lot of the sewing, and I also taught Joe how to sew. And I think things really kicked off when we had a stylist from Vogue pick up on our brand and she uh, used one of our jackets a couple of our items in a photo shoot for Vogue on Kate Moss so Kate Moss was on the cover of Vogue wearing a cat weasel jacket and things went crazy so it became more than I could actually um, manufacture myself with my little sewing machine out of a bedroom in a rented house in Wood Green North London so we moved to a warehouse, 2,000 square foot warehouse in Shoreditch in East London. Now, back in, in the uh, early 90s, Shoreditch was not the trendy uh, eating and going out area that it is now. It was just full of empty warehouses. It was a designer's dream. So we had this old warehouse it had no heating in it. My parents were horrified when they saw where we were living. And we had piles and piles of old blankets and I'll see if I can dig out some pictures as well to put on the um, show notes for this episode so you can see so we lived in this warehouse and we were making all of the clothes um, ourselves but of course when once you've been in vogue and Kate Moss is wearing your stuff things took off really quickly so we needed more machinists so what did you do back in those days when you were looking for someone to help sew for you we went to the local job centre so the local job centre in islington put a little card up saying machinists wanted and we had loads of applications from all these ladies that knew how to sew and we had we had a few of these ladies working for us and so we had our own little manufacturing unit in east london and selling at that point we then upgraded to a store in portobello and and things were going really well And what the best bit about it was as a designer we were designing all the products ourselves we were making it all ourselves and then we were selling it as well so we were really close to our manufacturing and we were really close to our customer now after a few years um, the business actually sort of got into financial difficulties. When, when you studied fashion in the, uh, in the 80s in the UK, they were very good at teaching you how to design and how to make products, but they weren't so good. At least Middlesex Polly, where I went, was not so good on business skills. So my business acumen was rubbish. Um, so yeah, w- things didn't go so well. I decided at that point I needed to close the business and go and get a proper job inverted commas. So I went to work for a company called Tammy Girl. Now, if you're old enough to remember Tammy Girl, it was the place to shop if you were a 10 year old girl in the 90s. Um, It was a high street retailer. They had hundreds of shops all over the UK. And I was a designer for their casual wear department and school uniform. And I would say at that time in the mid 90s, Probably 80% of the clothes that that high street retailer sold were made in the UK. So I remember we used to go and see knitwear manufacturers in Manchester. We had a lot of our uh, manufacturers in North London. And as a designer, it's brilliant that you've got your factories that close. So if ever there was a problem with any of the production, a sample, one of the patterns, I'd be called on to hop on a bus and get to the factory in North London and, and go and sort it all out. And That was, it was just brilliant. So I worked very closely um, with the manufacturing. After a few years at Tammy Girl, I did have a short, short stint in Italy for six months where I worked for a company that made all the accessories for Levi's. And then I came back to the UK and I was lucky enough to get a job as a designer designing accessories for Burberry. Now, this was when Burberry still had a factory in Hackney in North London. So the head office, the design team and one of the factories were all based in Hackney in North London. So we were really close to the manufacturing as a brand. But even then Burberry was starting to make forays into manufacturing in Hong Kong. So not so much in the accessory department that I was in, but more in women's wear. And that was the first time I, in my career, Um, had heard of anyone manufacturing overseas. I thought it was ever so exciting. But I didn't get to go to Hong Kong when I was there. Um, I got poached actually from Burberry to go and work for Marks & Spencers. And I spent 10 years at Marks & Spencers between about 1995 to 2005. And that was a time of massive change when it came to sourcing and manufacturing and it was in those years when I was at Marks and Spencer's that we went from making a great proportion of products in the UK to making very very little. I actually remember sitting in a meeting with a um, chap who worked for a textile mill in Yorkshire and telling them that we weren't going to be buying their scarves from them anymore, that we weren't going to be buying them from them because we'd found a much cheaper source in China. And it was really sad and it never, never sat comfortably with me at all. I still remember that meeting to this day and so many other meetings like that took place um, in those times in the late 90s where suppliers to the UK clothing market, the UK clothing retailers, were um, moving their production offshore and those suppliers in the UK. Many of them went out of business. Um, and, and funny enough, actually, the textile mill from Yorkshire, they didn't. They were one of the fantastic few that remained. Um, and funny enough, they are also now exhibitors at my Make It British Live trade show. So I'll, I'll come on to that later. Um, so in the 10 years that I was at Marks and Spencer's, There was practically nothing being sourced um, from the UK when I left. I then got poached to go and work for Debenhams. And I was at Debenhams for only two years. They made so little um, anywhere remotely local to the point where I remember sitting in a meeting with directors. It was what we called a range review where you presented the products that you were planning to buy for the following season because by that point I'd swapped over from being a designer to being a buyer and a product developer and I was managing quite a few departments at Debenhams across swimwear, um, clothing, accessories, footwear and I remember sitting in a meeting and having to justify why I still had a swimwear supplier in Portugal when the cost of buying their product was significantly higher than the cheap product we were sourcing from China. Now it was more expensive, but the reason I loved my Portuguese supplier was because everything they made fitted first time. The product sold really well. The customers loved it because it fitted really well. And the whole development process was reasonably short because they were based quite locally and they could get product to us very quickly, which when you're buying a product like swimwear is so important because it if you suddenly got a really hot, sunny summer, you need to get the product as quickly as you can to stores to sell it. So when you're buying product from China, the lead times are very long. Have a rubbish summer, no sun, and you're suddenly sitting on mountains and mountains of stock. But for those of you who don't know how it works in retail, what it what they generally do is look at the cost price of a product they bring in rather than the profit that they're making on each product so i knew as a buyer that my portuguese swimwear was very profitable because we sold nearly all of it we didn't put hardly any of it in the sale whereas i also knew that the product i was buying from the far east was much less profitable but oh no they only looked at what your intake cost price was and your intake margin and i found that so frustrating to the point where I actually just snapped and I'd had enough and I stormed in to see my boss one day without really thinking of a plan of what I was going to do next and I handed in my notice and I was on three months notice period so I'd handed in my notice I hadn't actually told my husband what I was going to do because there was no plan because I hadn't planned on doing it and I had three months to work out what I was going to do next so I knew at that point that I wanted to do something to support to, to, to the manufacturers that were still left in the UK because I knew there was a few. I still knew there was brands like John Smedley, Johnson's of Elgin, who were making in the UK. And I started to research and find out to find out that there were a lot more. So I knew I wanted to do something to do with manufacturing in the UK and helping those brands that made in Britain. And I also knew that in my 20-year career in design and buying, it had actually been only a very short amount of time where we've been sourcing from overseas and from the Far East. And I thought, started to think, hang on a minute, in, this has only been 20 years and we've we've gone overseas, and what's going to happen in another 20 years' time when wages start going up in China and the price of products that we're buying from China go right up? So suddenly the prices that we're, we're buying from overseas are quite comparable to what we could actually make them for in the UK. But I also thought, well, hang on a minute. If we don't do something about saving those manufacturers that are still left in the UK so that we've got them there in the future when we're really going to need them, then we're kind of stuffed. So I decided it was going to be my mission to save those manufacturers. And that's kind of how Make It British came about except I knew I wanted to do something with these manufacturers and the brands that made in Britain, but I didn't quite know what. And my original idea, because I was quite neat naive on all things e-commerce, was to set up an Amazon style marketplace selling only British made goods. But I knew nothing about selling online. I was very much a traditional bricks and mortar kind of buyer. And um, and I knew nothing about e-commerce, but I had a plan and I had a mission, and that was what I was going to do. So I spent the three months of my notice period working on this idea for my e-commerce style British-made marketplace. Uh, I, I I was inspired by Not on the High Street, who'd launched just a few years before with a marketplace style website. And at that time, it was pretty much only then and Amazon who were doing that sort of thing. So the cost of launching such a platform was going to be pretty big. I had some savings, but not that much. Um, But I had this plan and that was what I was going to do. And then fate took a funny turn because I, I left my job at Debenhams on Christmas Eve. And on New Year's Eve, I found out I was actually pregnant with my second child, which is kind of unexpected. And that put my business plans slightly on hold. I knew that if I was going to do such a huge task as setting up this big marketplace, I probably wasn't going to be able to do it with a newborn baby. So I spent that time while I was pregnant um, and in my time off after I left Devnams, researching my marketplace idea. I also... Um, studied for a master's degree just to keep myself busy, as you do, um, part time in internet retailing so I could learn about e-commerce. And it made me realise that I was going to need a lot of money to market this marketplace. So it was all very well having the money if I had it to pay for the cost of developing it. But I was also going to have to get out there and sell it and promote it. I just didn't have the budget for that. And if there was one thing that master's degree really taught me and I'm so glad I did it. So for anyone who is thinking of going back and retraining in something different, just do it. Because even if you don't end up doing exactly what you plan to do when you start um, doing something like that, it just taught me so many things. and I met so many fantastic people. And I also started researching a lot more into the sort of brands that were still making UK and the manufacturers. So I actually set up Make It British in 2011 as a blog that was going to be talking about the sort of brands and businesses that I was gonna sell on my marketplace because I thought I haven't got the money to market this big marketplace. um, So I'm gonna have to get my traffic from somewhere for free. So that's how Make It British came about. It really was just set up as a blog. And once I'd realised that the marketplace wasn't going to happen, I was so enjoying meeting all these brands that I was meeting and the manufacturers and writing for the blog that I kind of continued on doing it. And I thought, well, if I really love what I'm doing, one day, you know, it will build into something and something will come out of it. And pretty soon after I set the blog up, probably in less than a year, I was getting... Quite a lot of calls from the BBC, from um, newspapers, from journalists Because it was just at that time in 2011 when everyone was talking about um, the Olympics and being British And there was suddenly much more of an interest in sourcing from the UK and buying British made products And since I set up the website I have met so many wonderful businesses so many uk manufacturers who are also passionate about what they want to do what they do and really wanting to see uk manufacturing great again and um, it's also been a time as well where the retailers are starting to think more about sourcing locally and buying products that are made in britain so they've got more control of their production like i had when i first left college and i had my own factory That, you know, it's great to be able to have your manufacturing on your doorstep, especially with so much economic uncertainty at the moment. So I think there's never been a better time for UK manufacturing. I think there's fantastic things on the horizon. And that's one of the reasons that I've set up this podcast because I want to really shine a light on those people that are making in the UK, not only those that have been, um, have been going for, decades or hundreds of years and some of those established brands that have weathered everything that has been thrown at them um, particularly in the last two decades but also those businesses that are just starting out and they want to make in the UK and they want to make that part of their ethos and their brand. So I hope you found this inspiring and you now understand a little bit more about Kate Hills and Make It British and why I do what I do. listening to this episode of the make it british podcast if you're interested in discovering uk manufacturers within the fashion textiles and homeware sector you should definitely come to our yearly trade show make it british live the next event is taking place on the 29th and 30th of may 2019 at the business design center in london There'll be over 200 manufacturers, inspiring talks, just like those you're listening to on this podcast, and interactive workshops. It's the perfect place to network with others that want to see UK manufacturing thrive again. To register to attend, go to makeitbritishlive.com forward slash register. Or if you're a British made manufacturer or brand and you want to find out how your business can benefit from being involved in the show, Visit makeitbritishlive.com forward slash exhibit, fill out a short questionnaire, and we'll get straight back to you. If you want to reach out to me personally, and I'd love to hear from you, the best place to do that is probably via LinkedIn. Just look up Kate Hills and you'll find me. You can also find me on Twitter at Make It British, or on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash makeitbritish. I go live on the Make It British Facebook page every Thursday at 1pm. Do pop on over and say hello and say you heard me on the podcast. To make sure you never miss out on an episode of this podcast, remember to subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher or whichever is your preferred podcast app. I'd be so happy as well if you left me a little review on iTunes. The more reviews I receive, the more people will discover this podcast and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. To read the show notes for this episode, go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash podcast where you'll find links to any of the brands or manufacturers mentioned on the show. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye.